can turn to the Gospel of, anybody want to guess? Mark, very good. If you're new here, uh, you may not know this, but we're on a bit of a journey through the Gospel of Mark. And so we invite you to turn there. I'll have your page number in just a second. Page number 688. Somebody was on the ball. Thank you. Um, what we've been doing, if you're, if you're not here every Sunday, what we've been doing, you can follow along. We are uh, reading a chapter of Mark every day for the week. And then I promise on my part to preach from somewhere in that passage uh, the next Sunday. So last Sunday we heard from Mark chapter 7. And I encouraged you on that Sunday to start reading Mark chapter 8. You can read these chapters on the way to work or have them read to you if you have an audio Bible or something like that. Uh, you can read it on a coffee break. Um, it's pretty quick. But we think this is really good for us to get in the rhythm of hearing and reading the full gospel. I want you to, to read those passages. Let the questions emerge and come up. Let, uh, let all, let the Holy Spirit do its work as the scripture points us to Jesus, helps us to understand all that's going on. So today I have a, a passage and we're going to read a little bit longer. We're going to read Mark 8, 1 through 21. And so I want to say, hear the word of the Lord this morning, the gospel from Mark chapter 8. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have had nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them and also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present. After he had sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, it is because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have ears but fail to see? And or I'm sorry, eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five... 
five loaves for the 5,000. How many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, seven. He said to them, do you still not understand? Let's pray and ask God to break open and show us Jesus, the Word of God. Lord Jesus, come and speak. Bring good news. Help us to receive it with joy, either today or after we hear it. After we have put it into practice, help us, we pray, in your name. Amen. Well, if you've been around this congregation any length of time at all, you know that I am not a big fan of math. Um, and I, and I was, as I was preparing for this message, something dawned on me that there's a reason why I think I don't enjoy math. Because it was maybe one of the first experiences where I realized there are, there's more than one way to get something wrong. If you've done any type of higher math, you understand this, right? So you can do the problem and you can get it all out there and you could get the answer wrong. That's, that's one way that you can get something wrong, okay? But you could also do the problem, get it out there, come up with the right answer, but not be able to show the right work and do it in the wrong way. And it's still what? <clears throat> Wrong. And so, you know, if you're like me, I just picked a profession that didn't involve much math. And I have Joe do the count. So uh, so we don't wind up with, you know, 500 people uh, here when there's only 180. Uh, it's it's one of those things that that it's just one of those things where you can you can do it and you think you're going in the right direction. And still, you just kind of wind up missing the mark and missing the point. If you've ever had that experience in math or in other ways, you may be able to get kind of where the disciples, what they're feeling in this moment, in this place. It just seems like that whatever the disciples do, they seem to get it wrong. And if you read the passage all the way through... You know that even when they get it right, sometimes they still get it wrong. We'll get there. But Jesus is out. Some of you probably thought, is he reading the right passage? Because I seem to remember Joe talking about uh, the breaking of bread for the 5,000 not too long ago. Um, that's It's in there twice. It's one of those things. Now, why is it in there twice? Well, scholars seem to think that uh, we need to realize where Jesus is at this moment. So remember, I told you last week, anytime you see these miracles and, and these kinds of things happen, there is the surface level kind of, uh, you know, compassion. In this, in this instance, Jesus was compassionate on people who had been listening to him talk for three days and they were hungry and he didn't want to send them away to faint and those kinds of things. But there's always a deeper meaning, a deeper symbolism, a deeper spiritual understanding of what's going on. So the first time Jesus was in a predominantly Jewish area. And there were 5,000. We think uh, that's just the men. And so there could be as many as 15,000 people there or more. And Jesus did that. But again, they were 
predominantly or maybe all Jewish. We've begun to see over the next few passages that Jesus is moving out from the Jewish areas and going into the Gentile areas. And we're beginning to see that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about, this kingdom that is the kingdom of God announced by the prophets in ancient of days, and yet it is the kingdom that is going to be different from what you expect any time. It's going to be different. It's going to challenge. It's going to push you. And so now he's out in this this region. We've seen him uh, heal a, a woman's daughter who is a Greek. Oh, the Greeks were just terrible in Jewish eyes. We've seen him heal a man that out of the Jewish areas, his his ears and his mouth and set free. We heard that. Now we see that this kingdom, just as it was as bountiful for the Jewish folk, we are now seeing the same thing happen for the Gentile folk, the outside folk. And so if you are not of Jewish descent today, you should be excited. Because this means that this kingdom that Jesus is bringing, announcing in himself and, and talking about what God is doing in the world is moving out and it is in the Gentile areas. He does the same thing. Four thousand, probably that's just the men. There were probably at least four thousand women, and depending on how productive those men and women had been, uh, there could have been a lot of kids. He has them sit down. He feeds them, sends them out. Then he comes back, comes back into the Jewish area, and what does he first encounter? Someone who wants to test him. Someone who wants to. Have, have you ever had folks like that in your life? It just seems like you just can't have a conversation. There's always a competition going on. Sometimes sometimes that might be sibling rivalry or whatever. You know, what about this? Or what about that? Did you think about that? Uh, you know, all there's all those kinds of things that go on. I, I can just imagine Jesus as they're approaching the shore and he sees the Pharisees there just, oh, you know. I mean, the Bible even says he, he let out a deep sigh when they question him. They want a sign. A sign from heaven. Now, you and I, we've been reading chapter 8. And I'm going to go easy on the Pharisees because some of the miracles that Jesus did were out away from Jewish areas. And the Pharisees probably wouldn't travel there. But for me, when I was reading this, I don't know about you, um, it's like, show us a sign from heaven. It's, It's like Jesus, you almost want Jesus to say, oh, you mean like maybe feeding 15,000 people with five loaves and two fish? Uh, you mean like bringing Jairus's daughter back from the dead? You mean the sign like that, Pharisees? Is that what you're talking about? It, it's, it's like they just don't get it. And he tells them, you will not see a sign. Now, why is that? I have my theories. You see, there there is something in the midst of this of what's going on. And Jesus kind of hints at it. He hints at it when he's talking with his disciples, who again get it wrong. When he says, beware the, do you remember the word? The yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. He throws it in there. 
He said, there's something in this that you are to beware of, that you are to watch out for. And that is, in the Greek language, it is a present active uh, thing. It means it is something that you, we should hear this, you and I, as, as, as disciples of Jesus, we should hear this as something we are to beware of. We are to keep watching out for day after day after day. What is it about this yeast that's connected with this sign? I mean, yeast in, in the, in the, in the first century Judaism was seen as this kind of mystery. And it, it was kind of equated. We would use it uh, as a euphemism. It was kind of a, it's a, it's an evil we don't understand, but we know if you put just a little bit into a giant loaf of dough, it leavens the whole thing, right? It's, it's one of those things. So you've, you've got to really, Jesus is really saying you've got to really, really pay attention to this kind of thing. And somehow we're led to believe it's connected to this asking for a sign. You see, again, what we are seeing over and over again from the Pharisees is an excitement about an announcement of the kingdom of God. They want the kingdom of God to come. The kingdom of God in their mind means that we who are now underneath these, this Roman rule will get out from that and we who were being stomped, we who were the stompies will now become the stompers. We will be up on top. God will judge these Romans and these Greeks and these Phoenicians and these Syrians and all these other countries and we will put us at the top and everybody else Underneath, we are the one. We're gonna, we're gonna do this. We're gonna be great. We're gonna have all of this happen. Oh, and yeah, eventually there will be blessing that will trickle down, uh, to those nations. But the most important thing is that we will be on top. And the Pharisees seem to think that this kind of kingdom would come if they would just follow their religion to the letter. They thought the kingdom would come through them, through their obedience, through their morality, through those kinds of things. And it would come primarily for them. Jesus lumps Herod in there. What was the yeast of Herod? Herod uh, is an interesting character. He was not a uh, really a royal family. <laughs> but he knew how to swindle. He knew how to connive. He knew how to saddle up to the right kind of power, the Romans. And if they would just, if he would just keep doing that and stay near to this true source of military power, then guess what? It makes me the king of the Jews. So one thinks the kingdom comes through following religion. The other thinks that the kingdom comes by saddling up to the greatest amount of power. And Jesus says to his disciples, and he says to you, and to me, to all of us, beware of that yeast. Even just a little bit of it leavens everything. It gets in everywhere. It became, begins to change the molecular structure from the, from the bottom up. It, you just, it's hard to get it out of there. It's almost like you have to start over again with a new batch of dough in order for this to take place. If just a little bit gets in there. Just a little bit. And so when the Pharisees are asking for a sign, 
This is typically what happens when we even today ask for a sign. We are hoping to have our own opinion validated. Can I, can I say that? I mean, I, I do the same thing. It's not that I, I'm up here and Pastor Jeff is perfect. But when we're asking for signs nine times out of ten, uh, I think it is that we are hoping that God will validate my opinion. And in this case, that the Pharisees would have their opinion validated that the kingdom of God comes if we follow the religion and we follow the rules and we follow the right thing and, and it will put us on top and everybody else underneath. Or if I can just cozy up to the right kind of power, oh, I can use it for the good of everyone. If I just have that power, I can be the king. I can be the one that's up there. And I'm looking for a sign that tells me that that is the case. But Jesus says, to you and to me. No, beware of that. Beware of thinking that my kingdom comes through power or through following the rules and religion. Something different is at play when Jesus is involved. We begin to see this. uh, We begin to see this. I don't know what happened back there. But we begin to see this as Jesus begins to move into the different ways. We begin to see that right after he has this conversation, he takes his disciples who have completely missed the point. I mean, they're so off the mark that they're not even understanding the whole yeast metaphor. They're thinking it's about bread. I mean, can you imagine having one loaf and 12 people? You've just literally just seen uh, seven loaves feed like 8,000 8, people and, and you're worried about one loaf among 12 of you and think that Jesus is upset by that. So they miss it. Obviously, they're beginning to see something about what Jesus can do, but they're still missing what his kingdom is about. And so we see that uh, this man is healed. If you look at, at verse 22, they come to Bethsaida and some people brought him a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open. His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. And Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Remember, again, this is a wonderful story. It's a miracle. There's something that happens on the surface level. A man can see, but there's something deeper that is going on. I think it is as if Jesus is saying, uh, not that he got the first one wrong. Oh, you know... Oh, I didn't, I didn't get the right kind of spit in there, uh, in his eyes. Uh, you know, those, I didn't say the right words or whatever. I think Jesus is trying to show his disciples, you are almost seeing. You, you've got the concepts. You've got a few things that are here. You may even have the right answer, but the work that you, that you've done is, is leading you off in a different direction. It's not the correct work and we have to show the work. We have to show that this see, or we end up in a wrong place. And so he shows through this healing of this man. And then we get our great story. It's a pivoting point. In the Gospel of Mark. You can, you can write that, put a little mark, pivot point, right there. Verse 27, we hear that famous story about Peter's declaration of who Jesus is. And he gets it right. He gets the right answer. Isn't that great? He says, You are the Messiah, 
Jesus told them not to tell anybody about it. And then Jesus begins to talk about what his kingdom looks like. He begins to tell them what it means to be a kingdom person. It's not just a rule follower. It's not just somebody who thinks the kingdom is coming through religion. It's not someone who, who thinks that uh, the kingdom is going to come by sidling up to the right kind of power. It is someone, and he begins to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the laws. And then he must be killed, and after three days, rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. He's saying to Peter, you got the answer right. But the working out of the problem is all wrong. You're still trying to look at the yeast. You're still looking for the sign. You're still thinking it's about religion and rule following. You're still thinking it's about getting on top and putting everybody else underneath. You're still thinking it's about coming up to power. It is actually about suffering and letting go of your need for power. Don't believe me? Read the next verses. Verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or who can anyone give in exchange, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. That adulterous generation, that's, that's a good prophetic word. Do you know? When the prophets talked about Israel or Judah being adulterous, what they were talking about? I'll give you a hint. When we followed after Egypt or we ponied up to the Babylonians in hopes that their power would protect us from the other We thought the kingdom would be spared if we just got in with the right powerful people. And the prophets would say, that's adultery. That's adulterous. You are called to show that God will supply all of your needs. And that the kingdom is upheld through His glory and nothing else. When they went off and they followed their own rules and they thought that this is what would help them, that if we just come to temple every every day and we stand there, it doesn't matter what we do in the rest of the world. If we come and follow the right rules and we come to the temple and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And the prophet Jeremiah says, no, no, that, that, brothers and sisters, that is adultery. Thinking that it, your religion is what keeps and sustains the kingdom. It is God's presence. The only thing that sustains the kingdom. 
Have you been able to connect the metaphor between then and now? I hope so. Because sometimes I think that we believe that saddling up to the right power is what will keep the church alive or the country alive. Or that if we would just follow the right rules, if we could just get the laws passed, that all of this would happen, then we would see the kingdom come. But Jesus says to you and me in the 21st century, that is what an adulterous generation does. You are sustained, this kingdom is sustained by the presence of the living God that we find in Jesus. So what are we to do? If if we, you and I, brothers and sisters, we are somewhere in the midst of that generation. If we are somewhere where we're just trying to, to find our way, we're looking for signs that validate our own opinions, what do we need to have happen? What does Jesus then want to do for us? After his warning, I think what Jesus wants to do is to come and give us some unleavened bread. He wants to call us back to the symbol that reminds us over and over and over again. It is not by power. It is not by religion. It is not by following the rules that the kingdom comes. The kingdom comes through broken people and broken lives who take the unleavened bread and realize that somehow Christ is going to sustain them in the midst of that. I don't know about you, but I am hungry for that this week. After a week of being out and seeing and getting wrapped up and thinking that this kingdom is going to be saved by who's in the White House or what foreign leaders are doing what and what everything else is happening in our world and those kinds of things, I need Jesus to remind me, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. Come back to the table and try the unleavened bread of my presence. I need that. I think we all need that. And so in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to invite us, the disciples. I mean, I know we like to think that we are the people that get healed. You know, we're supposed to identify with all the people who get healed and those kinds of things in in the gospel. The truth is, is that you and I are meant to find ourselves as the disciples. And we get the right answer a lot. We love Jesus. We can tick all the boxes. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We can go through the creeds. We can do all of those kinds of things. But our work and what is lived out sometimes shows that the leaven has gotten in. And so, my brothers and sisters, wherever you are today, I want you to know that Christ invites you to take the unleavened bread that will sustain and heal your body and your soul. Wherever there is leaven for you, just invite you to allow the unleavened presence of Christ to come and heal, to be the sign, to be the thing that reminds you His kingdom comes through taking up crosses, denying ourselves, not looking for signs that validate my opinion, but surrendering to His will. Let's pray. Lord Jesus.
it is true that even today we can live in an adulterous generation. Oh, we've wrapped that word up nicely in other things. But the truth is, whenever we place our faith that the kingdom or the church or our lives are sustained beyond anything but your presence, we have moved off. We have allowed the leaven in. And if we're not careful, it will consume the whole of us. So bring us back today, Lord Jesus, to your table. Break the unleavened bread before us. Let us hear your words that say, this is my body broken for you. Let us hear the words of Paul saying that though you were in the form of God, you did not regard equality with God as something to be used for your own benefit, but you emptied yourself. And you call us to empty ourselves that you might fill us with the presence that truly does sustain the person, the family, the church. Call us back to your table today, Lord Jesus, and may we receive all that we need. For you are willing to give it, and we are hungry. Help us, we pray in your name.